As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo, technology, what is it all about? So we did a, a bit of research to figure out, you know, what's this kind of minimum uh, what we call a minimum viable product, yeah. uh, an MVP, for killing people. And uh, it turns out that something about three inches in diameter carrying about three grams of, of explosive, which produces an explosively formed penetrator, which is enough to, to kill a person. Welcome to your bonus episode of Danny in the Valley, where we have a very special guest. Stuart Russell, the man who literally wrote the book on artificial intelligence, is with us. He is a Brit. He is a professor at Berkeley in California. And 25 years ago, he wrote Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach. It is the most used textbook in the field. It's been used to train literally millions of students around the world. But there is a problem. Russell reckons that we are well on the way to having truly intelligent machines that will supersede all of us. The only issue with that is, is that basically the way we are crafting them is wrong. And it is leading to a potentially whole set of very terrible outcomes for humanity. So he's written a book about what we are facing and also how to avoid it. He is very eloquent and in an understated way, terrifyingly clear about the capabilities of AI. So if you care about the future of the human race, you should listen to this conversation, which we recorded at Russell's house in Berkeley. Just like that, we're live. Good. I was staying up late reading your book last night. Sorry about that. No, no, it's good. And so there's obviously lots of issues to talk about AI, but I th- if we can roughly break it into kind of three parts of where we are, where we're going, and what we can do about it. Today, 2019, the refrain from a lot of people in the computer science world are, in this world, when people get very excited, people like Elon Musk saying this is you know an existential threat to humanity, they say, my autocorrect doesn't work. Relax. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> is it an easy way to define kind of where we are right now? Because it does feel like there's, as you put it, there's certain tools that are getting quite good. And there's a separate debate around general AI. It's important to understand that what Elon Musk and others are talking about is the projection of a trend. He's saying this is a direction that we're heading and it may drive us off a cliff. He's not saying stop. He's just saying turn, <laughs> turn the bus before we go <laughs> off the cliff. Uh, and, and But there's a so, lot of people in this world and people that are closest to it think what he's saying is actually counterproductive, that he's wrong. He's just being a scaremonger and he's off base. So there's different things he's saying. His choice of language, you know, summoning the demon. (laughs) It's a metaphor, but it's the same metaphor as as I've been using, except I talk about King Midas, right? So what happened with King Midas is he, he said, I want everything I touch to turn to gold. And he got exactly what he asked for, which included his water and his wine and his food and his family. Yeah. So this is, I think, the same story, the genie in the lamp, and you ask, you know, he gives you three wishes, 
Now, what's the third wish? It's always, please undo the first two wishes. Because we are unable to specify exactly what we want completely and correctly. And the technology as it currently exists, and as Elon is projecting it forward in time, is based on the idea that you specify the objective for the machine, and then yep. the machine receives that objective and takes it on as its own objective, and then pursues it, and finds an optimal solution and carries it out. You know, and that's fine when it's a Go board, you know, a simulated Go board, and you're telling the program to win the game of Go, or you're training it how to do that and then telling it to win. It's probably fine if it's a self-driving car and you give it the objective of take me to the airport. Yep. But even there, right, when you say take me to the airport, you don't mean take me to the airport at all costs. So there's a whole bunch of background constraints and preferences that go into understanding what, what we mean by an objective. And when we give requests or commands or objectives to other people, we expect them to understand all those things. Just kind of um, a base understanding built in. Yes, yeah, so we, we share so much of our preferences about the future that we don't need to keep saying them. So if we say, uh, you know, we'd like to reduce carbon dioxide to pre-industrial levels in the atmosphere, sounds perfectly reasonable. Yeah. But we don't mean, oh, and let's do that by eliminating all the humans who are causing all this trouble in the first place. Because if I was uh, <laughs> a war, you know, a war game style AI, that's my most direct route. To making that happen maybe you say okay and and by the way you're not allowed to kill anybody right but then the ai system says oh well okay i can't kill anybody but i could still wage a very subtle pervasive global social media campaign to convince people to have less and less and less children until the humans are all gone right that we eventually humans come to believe that having children is fundamentally evil uh, and there are people who already believe that so this is not completely yeah. far-fetched right so yeah. With a machine that's more intelligent than humans, it's extremely hard to anticipate how it's going to carry out the objectives that we give it. And so this is what Elon is talking about. Uh, failure to recognize the possible risks uh, is where the problem arises. And the same would be true if we were talking about nuclear power. right? If someone says, oh, nuclear power stations could suffer meltdown under the following circumstances, yeah. you wouldn't say oh, that's just scaremongering. You say, okay, let's look into how to make them safer. And in fact, right now, the nuclear industry failed to do that. They actually underestimated the risks and then Chernobyl happened and Fukushima. Yeah. And now the rate of nuclear power plant construction is about a tenth of what it was before Chernobyl. So the nuclear industry got wiped out because it didn't pay attention to the risks. So just to delineate, so you have AI doing things like, you know, approving people for loans or school or passing judgment in courts and various things. These are specific jobs. But what you seem to be talking about is general AI. A few months ago, I was at Stanford at the launch of their human-centered AI high, they call it, mm -hmm. um, new center. Yep. Bill Gates was there and all the kind of, you know, the great and the good were there. And there was a lunch with the director, founder of Fei Lee, and we were all sitting around. It was a bunch me and a bunch of journalists, and I, the, you know, we were all asking questions. And I asked about how much of your work or what you're thinking about has to do with general AI. And they kind of looked at me like I was crazy. It was like a very gently dismissive, like that's not something we really spend any time on. If this was a center for human-centered AI. It feels like you should at least be thinking about that. And it was very much like, mm, don't worry your pretty little head kind of thing. <laughs> well, so I think that there's, there's an under, <laughs> there's a backstory to this. There's an undercurrent, which is that uh, about 15 years ago or so, yeah. um, a movement arose of people, they, they call it the AGI community as opposed to the AI community. Right. AGI stands for Artificial General Intelligence. And... That has largely consisted of people who, who feel that the AI community is too focused on short-term goals and yeah. isn't, isn't, isn't spending enough time figuring out how to make general-purpose, human-level AI. But that community is kind of a fringe community. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's a, a slightly mistaken community because two reasons. One is that the mainstream AI community has always been focused on 
achieving general purpose human level intelligence. We just understand that we don't have all the pieces yet. So we work on, we take what we have and we say, okay, well, where would it break? You know, how would it not work? How would it not be intelligent? Okay, what's the yeah. next piece that we need to figure out? Another important point is that people talk about tool AI as if, oh, it's completely, you know, safe. There's nothing yeah. you know, harmful about a Go program or something that recognizes, you know, tumors in x-rays or any of those things. They're all completely normal, safe. Uh, they don't have any connection with general purpose AI. That's completely false. That's where it feels like the connection stops. It's like when people are just like, oh, Elon Musk, he's just, he's just getting, he knows how to get good press, but he's being counterproductive. What is the connection between finding, you know, stage zero cancer in someone's blood to general intelligence? Let's look in particular at uh, an even more mundane and prosaic tool, which is recognizing the handwritten digits on checks. Okay. So that uh, so check reading software that takes a hand. Never you know, have to go to the bank anymore. Right. And, you know, and so this was something that uh, AT&T was working on AT&T Research Labs. There was a guy named Jan LeCun, you might have heard of. And he was working on this problem. And to help solve this problem, he developed uh, convolutional neural networks, which we now think of as deep learning. That was a, an advance made to solve a very, very specific problem problem right but that advance has also solved speech recognition general object recognition in photographs machine translation so three of the big holy grail problems of ai that people have worked on for 60 years so it's almost impossible i would say to make good progress on specific problems without uh making progress that's applicable to other things. I mean, so when, when he was working on handwriting recognition, he wasn't saying, oh, okay, I need an algorithm for recognizing the letter S. Yeah. Okay, and I need to find, you know, squiggly bit at the bottom, curvy bit in the middle, squiggly bit at the top, uh, and I write that little algorithm and it does its thing. That's not how it works. Almost no applications of AI work like that. They work on finding general principles that are applicable to that problem, whether it's machine learning from training data or if it's a, you know, robot you want to lay the table, well, then you've got to find uh, ways of, of constructing complicated plans. And, you know, a robot that lays a table, uh, that's a pretty complicated plan. It may, might be a million motor control steps for the robot. So coming up with million step plans, that's a big part of general purpose intelligence. So you can't really solve these specific problems without both bringing to bear general purpose ideas and pushing further on those ideas because usually they don't work uh, yeah. when you first put them together uh, and you have to actually make them more scalable to bigger problems or more broadly applicable to handle issues that weren't previously considered. If we're talking about a continuum and at the end of that continuum is super intelligent general intelligence because right now, I mean, what is the kind of the state of the art, so to speak, or the kind of the limits at which we are pushing? I want to be completely clear, yeah. we are not close to superintelligent AI. Now, some people, for example, some people at OpenAI, like Ilya Sutskiva, believe that by scaling up technologies we have, yep. so bigger machines, more data, giant deep learning systems, that we will reach human-level AI in five years. I don't believe that. My actual estimates are probably more conservative than the typical AI researcher. The typical Which AI researcher decades, right? would say 30 to 40 years. In China, people are actually more optimistic. They would say 15 to 20 years on average um, before we have something. And of course, it's not, there's, no, there's no clear line right, yeah. that you cross. Oh my goodness, you know, we've suddenly created human-level AI. It actually will be much more that along certain dimensions of intelligence will find systems that are far in excess of human capabilities. And they already are. Just the Google search engine can recall, based on keywords, far greater volumes of, of text data than, than we could ever imagine. Yeah. So we'll see systems that are very kind of spiky. They, they have enormous capabilities in some directions, but they're still very rudimentary in other directions. So the Google search engine uh, has this amazing recall, and that's going to get greater as it starts to, to process 
the content of what it what it looks at rather than just kind of index indexing it. It'll actually start to understand the content, but it will still not be able to plan its way out of a paper bag because it doesn't do planning. Yeah, people working on robotics or on solving these really complicated, massive uh, online video games, they work on plans, and you know the the length of plans they're able to construct. Uh, is in the tens of thousands of steps and heading towards the millions of steps. Um, and then at some point, we figure out how to combine these two technologies. So now you have systems that know much more than any human being. They can access all that information when they're making decisions and they can look further ahead more accurately into the future. And now you start to see, oh, well, it starts to sound like general purpose yeah. intelligence. But there are breakthroughs that still have to happen. Yeah, there's so many steps to get there, right? It's not like, yeah. oh, we're you know 95% of the way there. And, and it's just... not an engineering problem. It's a basic research problem. We need conceptual breakthroughs. We, we don't really know how to understand language. We don't really know how to construct very long-term plans and behaviors. Um, at the moment, we... The systems rely on humans to supply the sort of hierarchical abstractions. The, the different layers of detail in the plan have to be supplied by humans. We did a podcast last year on robotics. The whole kind of rise of the robots who can take all your jobs, etc. And one of the researchers was just like, look, if you're worried about the rise of the robots, put a two-by-four in front of it. Or like a glass wall. The robot is flummoxed. Like, in other words, everybody relax. There are certain pockets where if you are, I don't know, say a radiologist, you might be quite worried. Yeah, I was just having dinner with a radiologist a couple of weeks ago, and he, he's been writing articles saying, listen, guys, we're all toast. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, and I you know that there's a maybe a public relations view going around uh, from some uh, corporations that don't worry you know, yes. It's not going to replace you. It'll just make your job more interesting. It'll do the routine parts and leave you more time to work on the, the interesting cases. So if you're a radiologist, does that mean people are going to break their legs in more interesting ways so that you have something interesting to work on? <laughs> I mean, it's just a complete fiction. Here's the issue with respect to employment. I mean, I, th I think we've already seen massive reductions in employment due to automation. This has been going on for a while. Whether or not new forms of employment come along fast enough. Sometimes they have, sometimes they haven't. So we've seen big downturns. So manufacturing employment yep. in the U.S. has dropped dramatically, even though the output of the industry has increased dramatically. Clearly, that's the result of automation. And that has decimated some parts of the country. New jobs haven't arrived fast enough for those parts of the country. But if you think about what's happening over the longer term, when AI systems become more capable let's say it's on the 30-year yeah. timeline, during those 30 years, there'll be advances, each of which ends up enabling machines to take over a lot more. So natural language understanding would be a big one. Yeah. Right? If, you really, if you can really read and understand things, then you can start to do things like teaching, being a journalist, uh, and so on. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, if you think about how, how many of all these new white-collar jobs just involve reading, talking, understanding, conveying, summarizing, writing reports, writing PowerPoint, all that can be done by machines, that would be a big problem. So if you look at the time scale of 30 years and imagine that in 30 years time, pretty much anything that we currently call routine employment would be done better by a machine. Then we think that's realistic. That seems to be a consensus view. Yeah. You have to say, well, what people will be doing in 30 years time I suspect is going to be largely providing individual person-to-person -person services, uh, things that make each other's lives better. Stepping back, if in that 30 years that does come to pass, looking at this from an evolutionary perspective, that feels like us emerging from the swamp onto land. I mean, it feels like that it's that significant. So it's a two-edged sword, right? You might, you might say, oh, this is really bad. But you might also say, well, look, most humans for the last five, 10,000 years have actually been used as robots. Uh, we make them do uh, just in order to, 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 to find enough to eat and have a place to live. Uh, we make them do repetitive work that engages almost none of their human faculties that in many cases is kind of soul destroying um, and also body destroying 
if you had been writing science fiction 10,000 years ago, and you said to the hunter-gatherer tribes, you know what, in, in 5,000 years' time, uh, you, all your descendants are going to be going into buildings where they do the same thing day after day after day, thousands of times a day with no windows, no exercise uh, until they die. They'd say, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, what kind of a science fiction nonsense is that? That's never going to happen, <laughs> right? And, and now uh, we're saying, oh, my God, it's going away. So that's, that's the upside, right? That we're actually freeing up humans from drudgery and tedious, soul-destroying work. But for humans to continue to have value in society, we have to become much better at the other things, the things that do engage human faculties uh, that involve interacting one-on-one. -on -one. And right now, we've spent so much of our, our research effort on producing things like a cell phone, Yeah. right? I mean, here's my cell phone. This represents a trillion dollars of research and development. How much have we put into how to make people happy? Well, that's what's right. really interesting. The point you make in the book is around kind of happiness engineering should be this is not like, you know, I'm majoring in interpersonal communications or whatever, you know, like the joke kind of. Yeah, the woo-woo uh, woo majors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that this should be, this should be, you know, the kind of sister or rival or same level as computer science or engineering or medicine or whatever. We're actually now fairly good at fixing people's bodies. Yeah. Right. To making them healthy. And we pay those people vast sums of money. Uh, at least in the U.S., uh, because they're good at fixing things when yep. they break. And there's a huge science base that they draw on, right? So, so more than half of, of federal funding for research goes to the life sciences uh, and medicine. Right. Whereas the, the fraction going to understanding the mind and happiness, what makes a fulfilling life, which is after all what we really want, yep. has been very small. So people aren't going to have the wherewithal to really have a high value occupation if we don't do that research and if we don't then create the education systems around it. Uh, and all this takes decades. If we started now, it would take decades. It know. sounds like what you're advocating is a kind of a fundamental recreation of how we're kind of living life. And do you think that is necessary? It's going to happen, and it could happen in a bad way where, you know, if you just continue the status quo, the likely result is that most people would have no economic function. I'm far from alone in saying this. And so, yeah, they would be fed and housed and entertained, but they'd have no economic role. You might f find that society gradually adjusts so that people no longer expect to have such a role and they derive self-esteem and engagement and involvement and value from from other kinds of uh, interaction but that's just a hypothesis that that could happen it just seems like an admission of failure to me right and yeah. ubi everyone talks about well because that's universal, universal basic income we have a presidential candidate who that is his platform andrew yang and just giving people whatever a thousand give them ten thousand a month i don't you don't wake up whether you have, I mean, obviously money helps, but if everybody's getting this money, it doesn't change who they are, or how they feel, or their sense of self-worth or their place in society. And the other issue is if you know that you're going to get this income regardless, yeah. then why would you go to school? Because yeah, yeah, it does feel like the assumption built in is that people will suddenly be like, ah, now I can go be a poet. Now I can self-actualize and do the thing I really want to do. But I mean, most people aren't that way. They wouldn't have read any poetry at that point, right? Because, you know, schools, schools would have been abolished. Because why, you know, why would we spend 10% of GDP educating people to sit around and do nothing? This doesn't seem like a direction I think we should be, we should be going. So we have to engineer a vision of a desirable future where machines are doing most of the work that we currently call work. So what does that look like? In fact, I just got off a call organizing a workshop with economists and science fiction writers and AI researchers specifically aimed at coming up with this, uh, with this vision. Because I think economists are pretty pessimistic about this. Yep. You know, they, they say, oh, you know, the best thing we can do is increase the level of private unemployment insurance contributions, which like UBI is, is an admission of failure. And it might be a good uh, a good backup 
because the last thing you want obviously would be that there's widespread destitution yeah so e economics is not really a synthetic discipline in the sense that they don't invent new economies uh on a regular basis um whereas science fiction writers that's kind of what they do well at least some of them do so i'm i'm hoping that by putting the groups together the economists can add sort of economic realism uh and and functioning uh, and the science fiction writers can imagine possible ways that things could be different from the way they are so just stepping back again looking at this in the kind of the history of humanity how big a deal is this what is happening what is coming what is already i think it's william, william gibson says you know the future is already here it's not evenly distributed there's <laughs> there's parts of it here and there already i'm just trying to kind of place this in terms of how you view it uh, in the history of kind of homo sapiens mm -hmm. i had been thinking about this issue for a while and i i gave a talk at the dulwich picture gallery which is an old yeah. art museum in south london and uh, it was a completely non-technical audience so the way I decided to try to explain this was to make it kind of like the Oscars and here are the top five candidates for biggest event in human history. Yep. And, you know, we have like, you know, everyone is killed by a giant asteroid that destroys the Earth or, you know, we figure out the key to eternal life and we all live forever or superior alien civilization lands on Earth and, or we invent super intelligent AI. I actually chose that as the biggest event. For several reasons one one is that our you know our whole civilization is the result of our intelligence if we had access to much much more intelligence it would just enable us to have a completely different civilization uh, what we've been talking about we would have essentially everything as a service right now we have you know we talk about software as a service which means that yeah. if i want some software you know, I don't write off to Microsoft and get a shrink-wrap shrink DVD. Uh, I just sort of tap, tap, tap on, on, yep. on, my, on my laptop or my phone, and it becomes available, and I can start using it. We have travel as a service, right? So I want to be in Australia tomorrow, get out my phone, tap, 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 and I'm in Australia tomorrow. Two centuries ago, that would have been, you know, $5 billion, 10 years, 80% chance of death. <laughs> uh, you know, a ma major, major undertaking to get yeah. to Australia. Uh, and now it's tap, tap, tap. And with general purpose AI, it's everything as a service. You want a new house, your village needs a new school. Uh, it's effectively tap, tap, tap. You know, there's still, there are still physical constraints on how long it takes to, to move around and build things. But because there need be no humans in the supply chain anywhere, and things cost money, because there are humans in the supply chain, because they all have to be paid everywhere along the line. Effectively, things would be free. And, you know, flying to Melbourne isn't exactly free yeah. uh, because you still got to pay the pilots and the staff yeah. on the airplane and, the you know, the gate agents and the people who make the airplanes and so on. But it's effectively free compared to what it was yeah. 200 years ago. And that's going to be true for pretty much everything Roughly speaking, right, so they're not talking about science fiction advances like eternal life or superpowers yep. or anything, but just having for everyone on Earth to have a respectable middle-class Western standard of living, that's a tenfold increase in GDP. Yep. And if you, if you calculate what economists call the net present value, which is sort of the cash equivalent of that uh, in a lump sum, uh, it's $13,500 trillion dollars. Very roughly, that's the size of the prize that we are aiming for. That's why Google was founded, was to achieve human-level AI, not to do a search engine. The search engine is just how is how, how they get funds to to fund the uh, the long-term. Was goal. that the that was uh, yeah. Larry and Sergey's? Yeah, the plan goal. the plan was that they wanted to achieve human-level AI because that would be the big economic win. So these amounts that people are talking about, you know, the EU 20 billion euros or China 150 billion euros, they sound like a lot. What, what they're putting into AI research. What they're putting into AI research. But uh, compared to the size of the prize, it's absolutely minuscule. Right. Um, and that prize also is what's creating, you know, the sort of unstoppable momentum. You know, we're sort of in the bus and the bus is going fast and no one has any plans to stop. And if the direction we're going is off a cliff, that's not good. No. So uh, we want to find uh, a way of creating general purpose AI that 
still leaves us in control uh, and that leaves humanity with a purpose and a function and a vigorous civilization that we control rather than sort of being passengers in a cruise ship or being mascots or being pets <laughs> yeah exactly but it is interesting that people don't really want to talk about what you're talking about in the industry that this is coming and i don't know if that is a kind of a self-preservation we don't want to freak everybody out type of thing yeah there's definitely for example google no Abs one in Google is allowed to no talk about. No way, absolutely uh, not. Is allowed to talk about this because, quite rightly, what they fear is a headline with the word Google, because everyone likes to click on things about Google, yeah. uh, and a Terminator robot as yep. the first picture. The media are very fond of putting Terminator robots on anything we love, to do with we AI. We love Arnold with uh, AI. Yeah. You know, I, I've tried to impose an embargo in the sense that I, I won't do an interview until you agree not to put a Terminator. <laughs> but then the journalist says, oh, well, it's not up to me. It's up yeah, to, exactly. you know, the editorial guys, and that's nothing to do with me. So, um, but please don't put a Terminator okay. robot on this. Got you. <laughs> well, speaking of Terminator robots, can we talk about Slaughterbots? Sure. Slaughterbots is a short, uh, about seven-minute video. Terrifying. That um, we made in order to illustrate why we think that building lethal autonomous weapons is a bad idea. I mean, the lethal part's pretty clear. It kills yeah. people. Autonomous is a bit less clear. So let me explain how that word is used in this debate. So we're not talking about things like uh, the current predator drone, for example, which is piloted by a human. So the human chooses the destination. The aircraft itself maybe figures out how to get to the destination, yeah. make sure it doesn't crash, you know, is, is adjusting the flaps and rudder in real time to keep on course. But the human is deciding where to go and who to kill. An autonomous weapon decides where to go and who to kill without human intervention. So the human would give it a mission fly to, you know, this part of the Israel-Syria border and wipe out anyone who looks like uh, they might be invading the country. And uh, increasingly, militaries around the world are thinking, wouldn't it be great if we could have uh, machines that could accept that kind of high-level mission and carry it out without risking casualties and also with much greater precision application of firepower with faster reactions so they'd be less likely to be shot down and so on and so forth. So what the video shows is one logical consequence of autonomous weapons, which is that if the weapon is autonomous, basically one human can simply launch tens of thousands or millions of weapons. Yeah, because these um, are basically in the movie, it's like little drones that fit in the palm of your hand. Yeah, in the movie... Um, so we did a, a bit of research to figure out, you know, what's this kind of minimum, uh, what we call a minimum viable product, yeah. uh, MVP, for killing people. And uh, it turns out that something about three inches in diameter carrying about three grams of, of explosive, which produces an explosively formed penetrator, which is enough to, to kill a person. And <clears throat> the Swiss Defense Department actually built one to test it out and found that indeed that uh, that form factor is enough to be The lethal. Swiss built a slaughterbot. Yeah. Of all the countries to build a slaughterbot. It's kind of strange. It's not just the Swiss Defense Department. It's the Department of uh, Defense, Civil Protection, and Sport. So, of course. <laughs> Very so, Swiss. And the Swiss are so nice <laughs> and so on. Um, and I'm sure they have no plans to actually deploy these by the, by the billion. But that connection between autonomy and what we call scalability, the fact that you can launch them by the million, even if there's only two guys yeah. uh, in a truck. That's a real problem because it's a weapon of mass destruction, uh, except that it's much more dangerous than nuclear weapons for several reasons. One is it's lower tech. You don't need a giant military industrial complex yeah. uh, to, to produce these. It's fairly easy to proliferate and it doesn't cause all this collateral damage that you get with nuclear weapons. It doesn't leave this huge irradiated hole. So nuclear weapons are sort of purely destructive. They're not particularly good for um, taking over territory and occupying it because your territory is unusable. Whereas with this technology, you can simply wipe out all the males between 12 and 60 who might pose a threat to your occupying force. 
or you can just pick off every tenth one of those and then it cl becomes clear to the rest that they'd better give up. This also can scale up, unlike a nuclear weapon, where there's this hard threshold, right? You use a nuclear weapon, you're really stepping right into it. Yeah. You could have 100 casualties, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, any, any, any number. And so things could escalate in terms of retaliation. So there's all kinds of reasons why they pose really severe security problems for nation states. We made this movie not to scare the general public, but actually to explain this to the nation states because they just don't seem to get it. Surely the defense industry does, though. It's an interesting question. Uh, you know, do, do they really understand it? I mean, so Germany's official position in the United Nations negotiations is that a weapon is only autonomous if it's fully self-aware, which makes no sense no. from a technical point of view at all, right? It's like saying a missile is only a missile if it goes faster than the speed of light. An embarrassment, really. Yeah, yeah. And so I think there's serious misunderstanding. Another symptom of this is that both the US and the UK have internal policies that say we will not deploy autonomous weapons. But they are opposed to a treaty that would ban other countries from deploying autonomous weapons. So they're effectively saying our, our official policy is yeah. to commit military suicide. And I've asked senior national security advisors, why do you have this apparently bizarre suicidal policy? And the answer from the UK was, well, when you put it like that, it does sound a bit silly, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> so, so the idea that there's been you know, intensive, high-level policy discussion and there's deep understanding of all these issues, I don't think that's necessarily the case. The defense industry also seems to be sort of two minds. For example, the chairman of BAE Systems, which yep. is, I think, the second largest defense manufacturer, said categorically that his company would never make autonomous weapons because he believes they're fundamentally wrong. Yep. There is another issue which uh, hasn't been talked about much, which is that autonomous weapons would be much, much cheaper than manned weapons. For example, if you think about a tank, an enormous amount of effort goes into making the tank safe for the tank crew. All that becomes completely unnecessary. An autonomous tank is just a, a mobile gun. Uh, and if it gets blown up, it gets blown up. You know, fighter aircraft, again, they'd be a tenth of the price and they'd be twice as dangerous. Defense corporations actually don't have a strong financial incentive to push this technology. Are you optimistic or are you a pessimist? I'm generally an optimist on the question of you know the long-term prospects for AI. I think there yeah. are there are ways to to drive the bus that, so it doesn't go off the cliff, that we can actually devise designs for AI systems that will remain provably safe, deferential, subservient to human beings, uh, even if they're much more intelligent than we that's, are. That's 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 where I don't. That's where you lose me. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll explain that. Yes, please. Uh, but I'm also I'm I'm reasonably optimistic about the arms control negotiations. Um, some people are pretty pessimistic that anything is going to happen in Geneva because the Geneva negotiations require consensus. And there are a bunch of nations, Russia, Israel, Korea, currently the US and the UK, who are not in favor of a treaty. So some people say oh, there's no way with, with those countries opposed, there's really no way to make progress. But uh, I actually think that reason will prevail. And uh, if we have to do it through the UN in New York, where we more majority yeah. uh, can pass motions. A general principle that I think most humans would agree with, that we shouldn't make machines that can decide to kill people. Yeah. If, if you like, that would be a, a pretty sensible principle yeah. that every, everyone could get behind. So to come back to the question of how do we make AI systems that are more intelligent than us and yet remain completely under our control. Yeah, because it feels like if you just, you know, think about the animal kingdom, you have the apex predator, we are the apex predator. Yep. And if we create an apex predator above us, what's to stop them from just being like, oh, these humans are so annoying. <laughs> so you're just as pessimistic as Elon, <laughs> as Elon Musk, if, if he's pessimistic. So it, it does sound almost like, you know, a, a riddle with no yes. answer. So let, let's think about first... How do we imagine that things would go wrong? And um, so the example of, of a system that's supposed to keep carbon dioxide levels at pre-industrial 
uh-huh. uh, levels. Um, so we would imagine a very intelligent global climate control yeah, system. Yeah, because that's one of the positives of people say, oh, if we have a super intelligent general intelligence, then they can solve climate change. Yeah. Great. Or nuclear fusion or whatever it may be. Right. Fast and light travel, eternal all life. That. Yeah, exactly. well, that's all the sort of sci-fi stuff. But yes, it, it's it's plausible if these machines are much smarter than us that they could help us solve those problems. If the machine takes this objective literally, there's all kinds of ways that it could achieve it, including convincing people not to have any children and, and the human race gradually dies out. Yeah. And we would say, oh, that's not what we meant. So the problem is, you know, this King Midas problem of AI systems that take the objective that they're given and find the optimal solution yep. or near optimal solutions and carry them out. And that way of designing AI systems is, in my view, a mistake, even though it's a standard way that we do things. You know, the AI textbook has 23 technical chapters in it. There's 27 altogether, 23 of them are highly technical, talking about different ways of building AI systems for different kinds of scenarios and problems. All of them are based on the idea that we specify the objective and the AI system finds uh, the solution. And when AI systems are stupid and when they're very limited in the scope of what they can affect, that's a reasonable approach because if you specify the objective incorrectly, then you can sort of press reset and say, okay, yeah. well, how, well, I forgot something. Oh yeah, I forgot, oh, that humans want to be alive. Okay, better put that in the objective, <laughs> uh, you know, reset, start again. Yeah. Unfortunately, when machines are much more intelligent than us, there isn't a reset button. And, you know, you could see, you know, the flash crash on the stock market as a little warning sign uh, where the algorithms which are doing most of the trading suddenly just started behaving in this completely bizarre way and wiped a trillion dollars off the stock market in 20 minutes. Fortunately, because the, those algorithms are stupid, they can't do anything outside of their, yep. their narrow little domain of buying and selling, buying and selling, buying and selling on the stock market. So you can just pull the plug. And that's what they did. They pulled the yeah. plug on the stock market. It's like calling IT and just being like, Turn, a, turn your machine off and on, yeah. see if that works. <laughs> see what happens. You know, but if, if a system is actually intelligent, then of course, if it has some objective, like reduce carbon dioxide levels, it would find ways to prevent you from switching it off yeah. because that way uh, it can continue to do what it's supposed to be doing. So that route, uh, we can always switch it off, which is one of the first things that occurs to a lot of AI researchers when you bring up this issue. That makes no more sense than saying, oh, you know, we can just beat AlphaGo by playing the right moves on the board. What's the problem? Right? Well, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> you can try, but you can't. Yeah. Right? It's already thought of that. And interestingly, so every so often, film directors call me up and they say, oh, we'd like you to help us. You know, we're coming up with a plot for this movie about AI. And, okay, we want the super intelligent AI, and then we want the humans to outwit them. So can you help us with that? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, no, sorry. <laughs> you know can't do that. We have to actually get away from this idea that AI systems should be built to optimize objectives that we supply because we're unable to supply them correctly. Yep. Right. So it would be like making a plane that you can only fly if you have 17 arms and three brains. So if you insist that humans have to supply complete and correct objectives to a machine, it's not going to work. Yep. So that means that the machine has to be aware that humans have objectives but it doesn't know what they are. And this is just a radically different problem yes. uh, than we have really studied so far in AI. Study the case where it thinks it has complete and perfect knowledge of the objective, but now it's got to deal with the fact that humans have objectives, but and it's supposed to help us with those, but it doesn't know what they are. And that's not a, a new situation for humans, you know, if. When I go into a restaurant, figure it out. the the waiter doesn't say, "Okay, I know what you want. Here it is." Yeah, right. Unless I unless you go there all the time, but uh, they say, "What would you like?" And you say, "I'd like this." And they'd say, "Well, you know, actually, that's not so good today. How about this instead?" Yeah. And you say, "Okay, no." And can I have an extra bit off the side? And and there's a whole interaction that takes place during which the restaurant learns more about your food preferences for that particular mm-hmm. time, and you learn more about what they can do and how much it's going to cost and so on and so forth and and then you reach some uh some happy medium and so it'd be kind of like that except 
uh, you know, global scale, and not just your food preferences, but in some sense, the preferences of humans for the future. How would we like the future to unfold? And how would we not like it to unfold? And AI systems will gradually learn more about that for each person. There isn't one future that we all want. Uh, there isn't one set of human preferences or human values. So it's not about putting some ideal human values into the machine and making it ethical yeah. or anything like that. If you like, there's 8 billion of us. We'll get there soon, will be. So it's going to have 8 billion different models uh, for predicting how we want the future to be. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Is the underlying conceit then that there's not, that the, a true super intelligent machine will not be conscious? Because I guess at some point, if I'm like, you know, it's like if you're at work and you're like, you have a boss you don't respect, that's going to grate on you and you're either going to get promoted or leave or go do something else or just come up with a way to basically get out of that situation because you're better than that person. If you have these super intelligent machines that are better than us, if they're not conscious, I guess they won't finally decide, you know what, this, why am I spending all of my like brilliance trying to make the life of this underling better? Well, so if you anthropomorphize, if you if yeah. you imagine that yeah. this super intelligent machine is kind of like you, except much smarter, then you, yeah, you might well wonder why would it keep serving us? Because that's a, is that a mistake to anthropomorphize it? I mean, it's an interesting speculation, but at the moment we have absolutely no idea what consciousness is or how it functions in humans, and no one is doing any research on how to make conscious machines, uh, at least not. To, that makes any sense to me. Yeah. Um, and uh, I often say, you know, if you gave me a trillion dollars to build a conscious machine, I'd just give it back. I mean, I <laughs> absolutely no, no idea where to where to start. And I don't, yeah. I don't think anyone else does. Um, so, can I prove that this super intelligent machine is necessarily not going to be conscious? No, I can't. I mean, certainly, you know, there are humans who who don't feel pain. There's something about their, the makeup of their nervous system. So it's entirely possible to imagine that you could have intellectual capabilities in terms of being able to function in the real world and make decisions even much better than humans do without any conscious experience at all. It's interesting that it puts, puts the machines at a little disadvantage relative to people because we are sufficiently similar to each other that we can simulate what it's like. If I was in your shoes, you know, I uh, would. Right. What it's like to, you know, be spurned by the love of your life to, uh, you know, to hit your thumb with a hammer, you know, and if you don't know, well, you can just try it, right? I can hit, I can hit my thumb with a hammer. <laughs> and say, oh, that's what it's like. Oh, it's really awful. I now yeah, I understand why yeah. he was so, so mad, but of course the machine can't do that. So in interpersonal relations, um, I think that it's going to be a long time before machines can be as effective yeah. as human beings. And this, this is good because we need those, we need those jobs. Yeah. And at some point, you know, even though they have this advantage, they might get better 
than us. Maybe we need to reserve some functions for humans anyway. And just say, it doesn't matter if you can do this better. We're yeah. not doing it. How does what is happening with social media tie into all of this in terms of how AI is being used and some of the kind of glimpses of what, of the kind of the pitfalls that we need to look out for? One interpretation of what's been happening with social media is that the content selection algorithms, the things that recommend, oh, here's another story you might like, or here's another YouTube video you might want to watch. Those algorithms are designed basically to maximize click-through revenue for the platform. And how do they do that? Well, you might think, okay, well, so they have some kind of machine learning. The learning algorithm is supposed to learn what it is that we like, and then so it can send us things that we like and not send us things that we don't like. That sounds fine, although people say, oh, that creates a kind of an echo chamber where you, you only see things that yeah. you already agree with. Actually, I don't think that's what's been happening. So there are algorithms called reinforcement learning algorithms that rather than learning what you like, they learn how to send you things so that they maximize click-through. I think what those algorithms have discovered is that by sending you things that are a little bit off to one side of your current yep. political position or your current interest in climate or whatever it might be, uh, they can gradually move you, they can manipulate you, your mind, your preferences, so that you're a different person, one who's more predictable, probably uh, because you've become an extremist. And so extremists derive enjoyment from reading stuff that reconfirms their positions and so on. This is a hypothesis, but I think it explains a lot of what's been going on, that these simple machine learning algorithms, they don't understand anything about human psychology. No, they're just super, they're kind of like a hammer. I mean, they're just yep, they're they're, tools. They are, in one sense, they're not super intelligent, but they're kind of super powerful because yeah. they, they interact with you hours and hours a day. They interact with billions of people. And because they have so much contact with you, they can manipulate you. And they've learned to do that. Really well. Uh, really well. And this is the consequence of trying to optimize this fixed objective, which turns out to be the wrong objective. Just yesterday, I was part of a little Facebook debate online with Jan LeCun, who's director of AI research at Facebook and very brilliant scientist. And, uh, you know, he was pushing back against this whole idea that you know, optimizing fixed objectives is, yeah. is uh, something that could really cause problems. And he says, you know, at, at Facebook, you know, we stopped optimizing just click-through or just attention time, you know, a couple of years ago. And I said, well, why did you stop? Because it was the wrong objective. So you were deploying this super powerful global platform with the wrong objective. So you're kind of proving my point. I'm not sure exactly what they're optimizing now, but it's still almost certainly a fixed objective because... That's how the algorithms that we have work. We don't yet have algorithms that have this more beneficial property that they know that they don't know what we want the future to be like, and they need to understand. Uh, so economists call this externalities, right? Yeah, and they yeah. see this problem, you know, you maximize a company that wants to maximize profit can do that by pumping, you know, vast quantities of CO2 into the atmosphere yeah. or vast quantities of pollution into the oceans or whatever it might be. So economists call this an externality, right? But that's another, it's just another way of saying the same thing, that the, the fixed objective, profit, isn't the real objective of the human race. To get the real objective, what do you do? Well, in the case of pollution, you can tax it. You can measure it and you can tax it. In the yeah. case of manipulating the minds of billions of people, it's kind of hard to put a tax on that or a fine, right? And so the other answer is if you don't know what it is you should be optimizing, then don't mess with it, right? The things that you don't know that we want, don't mess with them, right? So what happens to If you Facebook? don't know what color we want the sky to be, don't mess with the color of the sky. Yeah. If you don't know how we want human minds to be, don't mess with them. Don't write algorithms that operate by manipulating human preferences mm. and interests. And so that suggests don't use that type of reinforcement learning algorithm with one of these narrow objectives because it will mess with anything else in order to maximize the thing, of that objective. the thing you told. Right. And this is, this is the problem. When we write incomplete objectives, the algorithms use anything else, any other part of the world, they can mess with it yeah. uh, in order to 
optimize yeah. the thing you said. It's an impossible problem then. For example, the Facebook issue, it's like, okay, also this algorithm needs to optimize happiness and fulfillment and personal relationships and... Well, as I said, it's very hard to, to yeah. write out all the things, right? So, yeah. so the point being, you want algorithms that are minimally invasive, meaning they don't mess with the things about which they're not sure whether we like or dislike them. But they don't know what they're not sure about. Right. Uh, they know that there are other, there are other <laughs> things. And, uh, you know, and so, yeah, so, so I think we, we can write algorithms that, that work this way. You know, to quote Donald Rumsfeld, you know, the unknown unknowns are, that's a, that is a real issue, right? In fact, I bet you most people haven't thought about what color they want the sky to be, probably because you know they don't have any way of changing it themselves yeah. but you know if you're a global climate control system you know maybe you could reduce co2 by turning the sky yellow or purple with blue spots uh, would that be good or bad you won't find the answer to that on on sort of lists of you know uh, imp important things for human values because it just never occurs to people that that could change um, so there are always these things that the algorithm will find to mess with yeah. Uh, that you forgot to put into the list of concerns that it's supposed to be worried about. And, and so the solution is to design algorithms that, that are minimally invasive. They only change the things that they sure you want changed in that direction. If there's no way to do that without messing with something else, they could ask permission. They could say, is it okay if I, I, I found this way of doing what you right. want, but changes the sky to yellow. Is that okay? And you could say, can we find? No, not really. We, you know, I mean, if, if there's no other solution, yeah, yeah, but yeah, you, know, yeah. or, you know, it's either that or we will die. I guess yellow is, is good, but you know, that's a serious uh, cost to making the sky yellow. So please find another solution. Right. Last one is on brain-computer interface. Mm -hmm. So I did a podcast on this. I talked to lots of people who are working on it. It's kind of exciting slash scary, especially when you're talking about this idea of. You know, we're trying to understand the brain as the ultimate supercomputer. If we figure that out, then that could unlock a lot of things in AI. I'm just wondering if you have a view as to how important that is in terms of this broader attempt to create super intelligent AI that is actually symbiotic with us rather than dominant or destroying us. Very interesting set of questions. Uh, I, I think brain computer interfaces are a kind of a wild card those lines of research could produce big things fairly quickly because we actually don't understand what we're doing. We don't really understand how these brain-computer interfaces uh, work as well as they do already. So the, the target application for a lot of this work um, has been people who are paralyzed yeah. being able to control a physical device like a robot arm with their mind there's been remarkable progress on this. And the reason it's worked so well actually is because the brain itself is a remarkably adaptive device. Effectively, it learns how to send the right coded signals to this robot arm to get it to do what we want. We used to think that we would have to understand the code that the brain uses mm. to control its own arms and then take that code and, and decode it and then use it to control the robot. But actually the other way around relatively little amount of decoding in the robot arm and the brain learns what to send to the robot arm to get it to do what it wants. Um, and this was done initially with monkeys yeah. uh, and now uh, with humans. So that's going to progress and continue. Two things I see that could be sort of big game changers because the brain figures it out, not because we figure it out. One would be access to internal memory. So one of the big bottlenecks in human cognition is the fact that we have so little short-term memory. You tell me a seven-digit phone number, I could just about remember that. Working memory. 20 digits, hopeless. It turns out chimpanzees can do 20 digits. No really? They barely, even, barely even break a sweat <laughs> at 20 digits. You know? So um, for humans, this is a major obstacle. If we had more short-term working memory, we would be a lot smarter. It might be that we find places to connect chips into the brain that the brain then learns how to use that chip as extra working memory for its, uh, for its thinking. That would be a game changer. Another possibility is that 
we figure out how to connect two brains to each other. You know, you might think, oh, well, you've got to figure out brainies, uh, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever this language of thought is, and somehow, you know, communicate that across the wire. But no, I mean, you just connect the brains and the brains figure out how to communicate with each other. And that would be a, a real game changer because then you've got a totally different form of consciousness. Telepathy. You know, perhaps you might, the two brains might actually become one. Right? We don't know how our consciousness works, so we can speculate. So that kind of thing might just sort of pop out uh, of this research, not because we solve the mysteries of the brain, yeah. but it just happens uh, to work uh, when you try it. You know, so some people, Elon Musk, for example, with his Neuralink Corporation, say uh, the best way for us to survive in a future of super intelligent machines is to become super intelligent, which yeah. means... Merge with them. Merge with them or, you know, use super intelligent machinery as an adjunct of our own yeah. brains. You know, that's an interesting view. And I, in the book, I say that it worries me because if, if everyone in the world has to have brain surgery just to survive, then we've made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so let's think about that. That's a good way to just... So let's think about yeah. that. <laughs> And, so, and I swear this is my last question. So why did you write the book? You've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. Why are you writing this book right now? So I wrote the book partly because I had something optimistic to say. I didn't want to write a book just saying, oh, look, this, the sky's falling. You, you know, there's going to be this major thing happening and we don't have a clue about how to, how to deal with it. Over the last few years, I gradually figured out this other way of thinking about AI, of, of systems that are necessarily going to be beneficial to humans and function with uncertainty about their own objective. Mm. And that, that actually opens up many, many avenues for new research. And I think the core of that idea is the right one. Because you can show, for example, that with that, a machine will allow you to switch it off because it wants to avoid doing wrong things, but only right. you, the human, And you know, can write that into the code. That basically... You don't write into the code, allow yourself to be switched off. You simply define the goal as be helpful to humans, but you don't know what exactly or, that uh, means. Don't be evil. If you like. You formulate the problem that way and you solve that problem in order to generate behavior. And that behavior includes allowing yourself to be switched off because if the human wants to switch you off, it's because you're doing something wrong. Yeah. And you didn't know it because you didn't know enough about the human objective, but you don't want to do things that are wrong. So you're happy to be switched off. Right, and it, you know, that that sounds plausible in words, but it also turns out to be a simple mathematical theorem. This inescapable connection between safety and uncertainty about the objective, and as soon as that uncertainty goes away, the machine's desire to be switched off also goes away. So, write in uncertainty, basically. In fact, there is a lot of uncertainty, right? Because yeah. there are many, many things that that humans like or don't like about possible futures that we would have a very hard time writing down. We kind of know it when we see it. You know, we don't all want to be in coffins with heroin drips. That, nope, nope, <laughs> don't like that, right? Uh, so, so I think this is an, an interesting way forward. So that, the reason for writing the book was to convey a sense of the importance of this question and to convey the sense that there might be an answer. To and is that answer radical? given where we are today in the AI industry, what you are proposing? Well, it's certainly radical. So, I, you know, I, I think back to the textbook that Peter Norvig and I wrote, so the first edition in 94, that entire textbook is based on the assumption that machines should optimize fixed objectives. And that assumption turns out to be wrong. And we have to redo uh, the book, except that we don't have all the the new stuff. Um, so the, the new edition I'm working on right now says, okay, we got it all wrong. Here's the way we should think about AI. Unfortunately, we're going to teach you the old stuff because we don't have the new stuff yet. <laughs> a little awkward uh, timing, but we do, have to, we do have to do a new edition. So my guess is that there is some resistance because you're kind of telling people, okay, rethink your foundations. My guess is in 10 years time, people will say, well, of course we always thought this. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Professor Russell 
for taking the time and having me into his home. There's a lot to chew on there. I just found what he had to say fascinating and also just the way he thinks about it. And he obviously knows better than me because I don't know how to code. I don't know how to create algorithms. But um, he brings up issues that we should all be thinking about. I hope you enjoyed that. In the magazine, in the Sunday Times magazine this weekend, I've written a big feature based on our conversation. So do check that out. You can also find me generally on Twitter at Danny Fortson and online at thetimes.co.uk. Until next week, bye-bye. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform... iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.